Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Nick Hahn, the founder of Creative Liberation, a coaching and design consultancy where he specializes in the human side of design systems, governance, contribution, and adoption models, all while guiding the deep cultural changes needed to ensure long-term success of all those systems. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, thanks, Douglas. Nice to be here. Great to have you. And as usual, let's begin by hearing a little bit about how you got your start in design systems. Yeah, it actually goes way back back in the day of selling computers at Gateway Country, if you remember the cow box, where I figured out that I love connecting people and technology and, and kind of understanding the human side of things and, uh, and and knowing the geeky side of what's out there and what tech is there and, what, and how to make great experiences. So um, ended up in... The agency world I had my own design consultancy, and then uh, went off and did uh, joined IBM, where I was a design design principal there, uh, leading a bunch of uh, design system projects, and then went to Envision, and then Facebook slash Meta, uh, and now I'm back out on my own. So kind of did a full circle. Wow, and what a ride! You know, like giant computer sales to your own professional services to you know Big Blue to then kind of smaller kind of startup by those comparisons and then back to the big uh, one of the big fangs right right yeah it was it was quite the uh quite the scale difference but it's interesting to see the patterns that come out in the human side of things regardless of if it's a five-person company or a five hundred thousand person company there's still the same kind of idiosyncrasies that that people do and the politics and how things get made is, is very similar yeah it certainly plays out very similarly and it's still baffling to me how often companies will focus on the technology, the process, and you know the logistics or the you know the, the the timeline, and really just ignore all those people issues. Yeah, yeah. My time at Envision, um, I was leading up the team that consulted with all of our customers that were buying Design System Manager, right? So trying to implement design systems. These were vast majority of the companies we worked with were enterprise level, inter- international enterprise level. And so oh, time and time and time again, we got to hear them say, oh yeah, we started building our, our documentation site. We started putting together the componentry. And then I would ask them, okay, who's involved? Who's gonna end up using it? And they're like, oh, these two dozen teams. And, and I would ask, how many of those teams have you talked to yet? And they're like, oh, maybe a couple, two or three, but we're already building it. It'd be great when we build it, they're gonna start using it. And, and that's like the immediate first red flag of, of, a, of a probably gonna be a failed design system. Absolutely. I mean, just like anything, right? Like lots of product companies have adopted design thinking as a way of building better products for customers, but it seems like employees and systems and processes for employees just 
somehow ha- <laughs> they don't they don't ever bridge those practices over. Yeah, it's it's fascinating talking to you know fairly senior level designers and design teams that are quite mature. And when I ask them like, well, what about adoption? What about governance? Um, they fall into the same trap of the engineering teams that they used to work with when kind of rolling out design thinking and going, how about we do discovery first? And so posing that question to those teams is often a, a light bulb moment of just being asked, have you done the discovery work? Have you done mm. kind of the staging work before you start building? Um, and it's just a human nature thing to want it. Well, I've got this stuff. I can start tinkering with it and I can start putting it together into a cohesive thing. And they want to, you know, it feels like progress. Yes. Uh, you know, we're all drawn to the quick wins and the easy progress. And and to your point, for design teams, it's probably easier from the grass because they're already doing it for products. It's like, oh, let's just apply it here. I think when it comes to other teams where there's change with inside an organization, it's sometimes harder to, for them to realize what they're missing because they haven't experienced it before. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, my experience at IBM, I was uh, managing the cloud platform design team. And we got to work really closely with our engineering and product teams. It was, you know, far more engineers than designers. They were trying to standardize the look and feel of all the cloud apps across across IBM. And getting each individual team to, to do that was a monumental task. I mean, just changing the header bar was like getting 50 different teams to, to update their code, right? And so the need for some sort of cohesive system was clear. And most companies have had that light bulb go off that we have to standardize these components and make it so that every team can use it without updating everywhere. So there's a lot of complexities with shifting the mindset from being a, a team that builds individual pieces on my product to teams that build products or pieces for the greater whole, the greater system. You know, I was talking to an insurance company recently and they had this big initiative going and they said to me, the good news is that we're collaborating. The bad news is that we're collaborating, <laughs> which is kind of kind of made me chuckle but then i stepped back and i thought well there are better ways to collaborate that are going to will scale you know there are ways to design these things so that we can move quickly but the thing that i think people miss is that you do have to take a moment and step back and do that upfront work to then lay that foundation to think about how are we going to collaborate in a way that's not just the gridlock yeah the one of the jokes i have in the design system world is you know the u.s government when it first was founded, didn't start building roads and build a bank and an army and then come together and make a constitution, right? They like got the 13 states together and said, how are we gonna collaborate? And how are we gonna like, what's the governance of how we're gonna function? And then they started doing the rest of that stuff. And so just taking that kind of approach to how to how to get dozens of or hundreds of teams together to collaborate is a, has been much more effective, I've seen. Yeah, and you know, also it's, Thinking about your comment earlier about people's propensity to build things, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad habit to go and tinker and build things. I think when you combine that behavior with the behavior of that, we often fall in love with the things that we make. Mm. And so when we're holding those two dear and near, yeah. And you know, because if you're bringing these groups together and you're tinkering, you're showing stuff off and learning and using those as ways to get input from people, then it just kind of shifts the mindset of yeah. let's not like hope that this like solves everything and just be in love with it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's really important to feel like you've got the freedom to to tinker. The blocker that people end up encountering is they go, okay, we're now the design systems team. We are the centralized team that will own the design system. They start t- their tinkering, but then they tell the other teams that will end up consuming the system, hey, we're building this thing. Uh, we're very excited for you to use it someday. The gap there, though, is that those teams that are going to use it 
should also be co-collaborators and contributors from the beginning, because it should be happening with them, not to them. And that's where facilitation and design thinking and all of these collaborative techniques that you and I love so so dearly uh, come into play. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's how can we invite them into the tinkering? Yes. What are some ways that you've seen that work well? Like, especially, you know, I think your experience at IBM is especially telling there. Mm -hmm. It's like how to see that find its way through more of the organization, not just the small pocket that we're occupying. Yeah, so um, IBM is a great case study, and then we actually replicated it. Uh, I got a chance to do the same thing uh, with the team over at Boeing. But um, for instance, at IBM, we had uh, 22 distributed design teams all on the cloud platform that contributed to it all over the world. And we kick things off with a design jam. So instead of us going as a design team, centralized design team, we know what components we're going to build and we're going to start building them. We did a three-day uh, collaborative design exercise where we had all the all the different people from all over the world come together. We, we've structured the facilitation of it. We kind of organized what we might work on, but then individuals got to select what area they were specifically, what component they wanted to work on, and they self-formed into small teams. Those small teams then owned that component or set of components over those three days, and we had multiple rounds of diverge and design and come back and present and get feedback. Um, and that was the seed of it. And not only did that help give us an immense amount of stuff to start with, it also made it so that the other teams had ownership into the design system from the beginning. So it sounds like there were a lot of people involved. <laughs> Can you kind of give me a, 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 I got the impression there was a lot, but yeah. give me a little bit more color on the types of folks that you brought in. Yeah, so I'd say it's it was 80% product designers. The other 20% was front-end engineers and uh, product managers. There was just less of them because most of the work for that initiative was heads down design time. And so like when you'd have a front end engineer on the on one of the teams, they'd be more there for reviewing and kind of giving feedback instantly. But uh, yeah, 22 design teams, I forget exactly how many, I think we ended up, we didn't take every person from those teams. I think the, the actual design jam had about 50 participants from those 22 teams. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean that's that's a sizable workshop. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was sizable a cool gathering thing. for that yeah, matter. Gathering, yeah, it was cool because it was you know traditional kind of design thinking workshops are more post it notes and like get away from the computer. This was almost more like a designathon or hackathon, right? It was like structured in a way where there was enough heads down time they could they could produce content and then come back and get it critiqued. You know, I actually a big fan of those types of workshops and events because. It just um, it kind of focuses on the generation of prototypes and things, mm -hmm. right, that can then be tested. And, and if we're all doing it together, there's kind of this dedication to yes. the outcome that yes. we're all putting in in the moment. Yep. One of, one of the biggest uh, design thinking tactics that we used at the end of this that uh, I had failed a lot with when I first started my facilitation journey was the clear next steps. Like we did all this work and we have all this energy and everyone's kumbaya, but what happens the next week and month and two months later? We had a dedicated half day to just assigning work and people dele delegating themselves to take on parts of the project because it really was the start of a huge 18-month-long project. And so getting them going and saying, I'm, I'm going to be the person that runs this part of it um, was, a, was a massive step. And I've seen a lot of teams skip that or kind of just quickly brush over, uh, but dedicated time to that is, is a huge value. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of commitments. We always think about when we're closing either the day or the, the series of days, how do we ensure that people are making commitments to themselves and to each other yep. so that we, we really land the plane? Because, you know, if there's not some prioritization, 
and some ownership coming right. out of it. It's oftentimes people will reflect back and go, Hey, was that, that was fun, but was yes. there any business value here? Yep. Yep. hundred percent. And I've, I've failed at that several times. And so if I've definitely ingrained into me that you got to have that dedicated time to, to commit to things. Absolutely. And so one of the things that we spoke about briefly in the pre-show chat was how often organizations are shocked at the sheer number of people and different types of people that get exposed to this work when you start really opening up design systems and and what's required to really have them take root. Yep. And so you mentioned designers, engineers, product managers, but I assume there's probably other folks that are impacted that ultimately need to be brought in when you're talking about adoption and governance and stuff. So yeah. you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, design system is really the instantiation of a brand into products, into digital products, right? And so you've got to consider what's the brand layer? What's What things are owned by brand? Is it colors and typefaces and all the other stuff that we think of in brand guidelines? So immediately working with your brand team is a, is a huge thing you should be doing from the beginning. If there isn't a brand team and maybe this hired a consultancy, you have to accept the fact that you're going to be doing some branding work, right? You're going to define some tokens in the design system. There may not be a tertiary color. You might need to do that, you might, you might, I mean, I have a disabled color, right? Like that kind of stuff you need to, to design and create during the process. Um, there's communicating with legal, with, uh, uh, with compliance, with globalization teams. I mean, there's, there's so much that goes into it that go beyond what the standard, like I'm going to make a card component. Well, all the things you need to make that a live component that can be used in UIs all over the world. Um, is, is a lot of work and typically is done in part of the production process. But the cool thing with design systems is you can centralize a lot of that, like accessibility. You can do a lot of that accessibility work in the design system versus at the end of every production cycle of every product you're making. Yes, yeah, so that upfront consideration is going to require some coordination with other teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's huge. There's also some interesting things around content and content strategy, like just being able to like content design is such a big deal now, right? There's so many content designers. It's really great to see that that trade sort of mature over the last few years. And now you're seeing heads of content design. And so maybe your content designers aren't staffed to your actual software product, um, but getting them involved from the beginning, what's interesting is content designers are actually a lot more comfortable with governance. I've been talking to a lot of them lately and like product designers tend to go, ooh, governance. I don't know. I don't necessarily want you all to be telling me what to do. But content designers are like, oh, yeah, give me the structure so that I can work within that structure. Mm. And so there's a bit of a marriage there of like blending those two kind of cultures where governance isn't a bad thing. It's something that gives me bounds to work within, just like any design. Um, and I know the bounds I can play within to, to do my creativity. That's super fascinating. I mean, do you have any thoughts on how that came about? Like why they would be more resistant or whereas the other group embraces the governance more or the structure more? I think it has a bit to do with the way we, you know, typically would go through like a design school or art school, right? It's like my design, I'm doing my project and I'm presenting my thing. And then I get into the, uh, you know, the, the enterprise world or the, the, the product design world. And now everything I'm making has to fit into everything else. And I have to take into opinions from a lot of other people. So there's already a little bit of like educating early career designers to be really comfortable with presenting unfinished work and getting that feedback early. So breaking that cultural bit of a cultural norm of like, I'm just going to work on this until it's done. And I shouldn't have to listen to other people tell me what should go into it is just a, you know, kind of a baggage that we have in the design world. 
Yeah, I think that shows up in a lot of places too, because you know, I've I've worked with folks that are really apprehensive about sharing the ugly baby, you know, and yeah. some of that is because of the way they've been treated in other organizations. Absolutely. You know, yeah. if people got shut down because something wasn't perfect out of the gate, then they're going to be very apprehensive oh, yeah. to to change to start sharing again. Yeah, providing feedback and giving good critique is a is a you know you have to be emotionally sensitive and or, or and have emotional intelligence enough to know how to deliver that, and also just have a general culture of like feedback is a gift. But if it's why does that look like that? That's stupid kind of feedback. Then people are going to be much more ins- isolated or insular on their on what they share. Yep. So. I wanted to also touch on something that was really fascinating to me and was this idea that once people start to use design systems or start to even kind of explore them, it can be an awareness moment around the maturity of their organization or a light bulb goes off that, oh, wait, like there's some there's some issues here that we haven't seen yet. Yeah. And so we're really curious. I mean, it sounds like it's very common. So I'd be curious to hear a, couple, a story or two yeah. about how that's shown up. And what does that look like when they're coming to that realization? I was working with a, a bank, a pretty legacy bank. And uh, at the time, this is in twenty, roughly 2020, um, they had just stopped using PDFs to email designs around to get feedback. So it's like kind of the, the way we handle digital design 10 plus years before that. So it was kind of a a shock just for them to go like, oh, we can just upload stuff and like share it digitally? Yes. So the idea of doing a design system where you have to have designs which are both in sync, that the things that are in design and in code, and knowing how design and developers like have to overlap and not just do a handoff in a waterfall style, realizing that they have to work in a different way uh, was definitely a shock. Mm. It and then and that's where you can tailor how much change you want to take on by that design system. Sometimes design systems are okay just to be a small little micro project on, and you're collaborating with five design, just design teams to get them to kind of function in the same way. But that's like the first step in the evolution, right? Eventually you need that design, those design system componentry to be in, in code. And so you gotta work with the developers to make that happen. So gauging what maturity level an organization is at will change how big or grand the vision for that design system is right now. Mm. And. Have you found success in, in starting small yeah. and kind of growing it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a couple approaches. If, if you can find, and I actually was working with a, a client who had a, their larger development organization was fairly hostile. They didn't, they didn't have a good working relationship with them. The, the stakeholder I was working with was in the design organization. Um, but they had a couple of front-end developers that were interested in being involved with it. So they just invited them to be part of the process as like a side project. And they were happy to, those developers were happy to join. And what they did is instead of building 30 components or 50 components and building a big site in design and maybe even coding a few of those, they decided, hey, we're going to start with one small product that's live. And we're going to convert a couple of those components into design system components. So starting with two to three components in the library total, and then just making sure that those components show up in a product is really, I would say, more of a design system than having a library of 50 components that people just look at. If it's going straight from design all the way to code and people are contributing to it, that's a system. Mm, Yeah, it comes back to your point around adoption, right? If it's not making the code, it hasn't really been adopted. There's there's two interesting words in here. There's adoption, which I typically use to mean as the 
is it culturally adopted? Are people actively contributing to the system? Are they starting their designs and development work for, by going to the system to pull from it? Like that's that's adoption to me. And then there's implementation of the of the coded components into product. And those are two distinct things. You can have a hundred percent adoption, everyone contributing to it, and it not showing up in in end product. Right? It's not implemented yet into end product. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're thinking in, in the terms of a buy-in that people are like Correct. into it and contributing. Correct. I guess when we're thinking about helping with adoption with relation to a change in an organization, yes. like people can be bought into it, but if, if the follow through isn't there where we got the business value, mm -hmm. we haven't we haven't nurtured that. Correct. You know that adoption's not rich enough, right? Because at some point there's a broken link in the chain. Yes, it, it's interesting. If it, it, adoption can go, you can measure adoption almost down to the individual practitioner level. Like if I'm a designer and I sit down and I have to work on a new design. Do I go and slack my coworker and say, hey, can you send me that Figma file that we used last year so I can start from that? Or do I sit down and open up the design system, look at the guidance and start pulling the stuff from that and using the tools that are in the system and then going how, oh great, there's a card, there's a card component. It does 90% of what I need it to do, but it's missing something. So how do I give that feedback into the system? If you can start mm. in that place of like, I'm literally starting with the system and then working from that, versus let me just comp something up real quick, which is when these systems get really splintered and stop being a system. It's really interesting because that word system gets thrown around a lot and not everyone has taken the time to look at you know systems theory mm -hmm. or think about what the word system means. And what you're describing is if it's not a living, breathing thing, it's not a system. Right. If they're not inputs and outputs and feedback loops and yes. whatnot, it's not really a system. Yes. And so I love the fact you were pointing out a feedback loop right there, which is a critical element of, of any system, mm -hmm. and how if we don't have the ability to, to notice something is not serving us and then point that out and have it addressed, right. then it's not really a system. Take, I mean, I've said the word governance a few times, and when I talk to folks about design systems, they oftentimes need a bit more detail about what governance means. In this case, it's literally that. It's hey, I'm a designer on product A, I'm using that component, it doesn't serve my needs, how do I get my voice heard back into the system and make sure that that's validated and I get I get output from it at some point? It's like, it's like contributing to a law, right? Like I give feedback to my government and hopefully that feedback turns into something that makes a positive change, right? And there's plenty of broken governance systems. So like always attributing it to a local government or something is not necessarily the best, best example, but just having agreements in place so that you know how to operate in that in that in that exchange is is really important. What what's some simple examples like for those wanting to get started that kind of provide enough structure, but um, to have some governance there? Yeah, I always like to do some sort of workshop. Uh, I love the idea of kicking off with you know finding those initial stakeholders, getting some degree of support, even if it's an unsanctioned pro project from the higher higher ups. You know, you can use your side time to gather some folks together and get people together to define what is the real problems that we're trying to solve with what we think a design system is. Design system as a term is like UX had been for 10 or 15 years, just this broad umbrella term. So I see people trying to do a design system and they, they're calling 10 different things a design system. So get together with your stakeholders, get together with the people that might end up using it and ask them what they think this thing should be and start building it together. Get some sort of consortium together. Definitely the best place to start then you might say, hey, I've got a bunch of Figma libraries or a bunch of you know sketch libraries, and we can throw those together into a pool and start mixing matching. Great. But that should be after you get the folks together and run run some sort of facilitated activity.
Yeah, it's you know a theme that I'm hearing. It's not just a library of things that people are throwing to that gets you know varying levels of usage. It's it's really a cultural thing. Correct. Yeah. I, here's a quick story. One of the designers that that I used to manage, a phenomenal designer, been doing it for years, UI design for years and years. She said to me, once she understood what a design system was and how it was going to impact her job, she was like, okay, so the design system is going to have all the design done in it. So what is my job? And her question was rooted in my value. She didn't say these words, but this is what it meant. My value as a designer has always been represented in how many wireframes and prototypes I build, right? How many I knock out. You're saying to me, I don't have to make as many or many wireframes or prototypes anymore. I can just sort of cobble together stuff from the system. And I'm like, yes, that's that's the point. Now you can go from being a bricklayer to an architect, right? And that's the thing you always been asking. You want to be at the table. You want to be where the decisions are happening. You will now have time to be at the table versus just pumping out wireframes. It's really interesting to point that out because when you describe it from the point of a bricklayer versus an architect, that's some clarity in that, right? But people don't always see it from that vantage point. Because if they were trained to be that bricklayer, that's kind of what they valued about themselves. There's some identity, yes, right? There's some sense of self there. And there's some pride in craft. Like, I'm really good at moving these pixels. Mm -hmm. And not really realizing that, you know, the 10% of the time that they spent really creating the best flow possible. Right. Or just, just some of the nuances of the things they just have done innately because that's the way they flow them out yep. or respond to user input or whatever. So pointing out that like there's the real value, you know, all the even though you spend eighty percent of your time moving the pixels, the real value is the thing you've been spending twenty percent on. What if you could spend hundred percent of your time doing that? Yeah, and honestly, the, the irony is that even that person and many people I've interacted with in that same situation, they will on the side also complain that they're in meetings all day and they don't have enough time to do the designs. And if they just had more time to do the design, it's like it's this catch twenty two of if the time spent doing the pixel pushing is reduced dramatically, you then have the headspace and the actual physical hours in the day to go talk to stakeholders, go do interviews, listen to the research, like collect the data so that you can best represent the user in the company. Also, if it's less laborious, you don't feel so attached to throwing it away. If you can more quickly cobble together, to use your word, yeah. a prototype and get feedback on it and it's not the right thing, just do it again. Do it, again. it wasn't that much effort to do it. Yeah, you're not spending... Yeah. All that time moving, I mean, you know, 10 or 15, 20 years ago, we spent so much time designing buttons, right? And like pixel perfect, like how much, what's your corner radius? Now almost nobody designs buttons, a few people. We used to spend a lot of time designing typefaces. If you're spending your time as a UI designer designing typefaces, you're not spending the right, you're not putting your time where it should be going, right? You can do that on the side, that can be a thing, but that's not the role of a UI designer. Same with visual designers. We, I mean, when I joined IBM, we were, our teams were staffed, each team had a visual designer. We found out real quick that once you have a design system or even a decent UI library, visual designers don't have that much work to do. You're not type, you're not laying things out anymore in the same way you used to. So that trade kind of changed in what they do. And now the visual designers might be on the brand team or on the design system team helping define it at a top level down, but they're not on each individual product team. Yeah, it's also making me think about how this phenomenon we're discussing shows up in other places as well, because let's let's look at the rise of AI, mm -hmm. right? And you know, chat GPT and all these other tools that create generative um, inputs, yeah. right? That's cutting a lot of the busy work, a lot of the equivalent to the pixel pushing out, yes. right? And, it, and it's really frightening to a lot of people. But 
I think the thing that everyone has to keep in mind is that, hey, let's embrace that. Yes. What does that free up the time to do? What new opportunities can we move faster yes. and not have to sit here and do that piece anymore? It's like, yeah. that's really super fascinating. And so I guess to bring it fully circle, are you seeing any new AI tools that are emerging impacting design systems? Not yet, but from the new batch of stuff that's come out, I'm really excited and kind of keeping an eye on it to see who, who, who applies this technology to design systems. I do think there's an opportunity to use those systems, those AI uh, models on if you have a robust design system and it says, create a login through checkout user flow, it could probably do that and, and then create a new version of it and then you could test it, te iteratively test it. There is a tool from Adobe, and I forget the name, it was a concept, um, where you could sketch out on paper and it would visually look at that sketch and then create a coded UI based on the design system it's tied to, right? So it was very mm. rudimentary, but this idea that I could sketch maybe something on a whiteboard and then that pops out a coded prototype that I can have users use is that's where you get into really cool tight cycles of, of iteration and learning that we're really hamstrung from doing now because it takes so long to produce a single prototype. Yeah, you know, I've been watching Mid-Journey pretty closely. Mm, interesting. I'm really fascinated by that. There's some interesting stuff that I think is possible. And also, I don't know, I, I think we're going to see, especially with just so many new tools coming out, I think we're going to start seeing some real opportunities to do generative stuff, yes. which is like, what if you've got a challenge that you need solved and you have the system spit out like 50 designs and you look at the 50 of them and say, oh, that's interesting. Or maybe you combine three of them. Mm -hmm. I personally have been using ChatGPT to just get past writer's block. Yep. You know, previously I would rely on a thesaurus pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd kind of think of a word that basically was saying what I was trying to say and I would use the thesaurus to look at a bunch of other words, yep. and then I might take one of those words and put it in. It's almost like a mind map of different <laughs> sure. association words, right? Now with the tool, if I'm stuck or needing inspiration, I might just type something in, and then I've got a couple of paragraphs to just think about, and then I'll go, I'll, I'll rarely just copy-paste. I'll usually just read it and then go, okay, now I know what I want to go write. And I think that's how we'll see these tools impact designers as well, just from that pure inspiration and generativeness. I love that. And I've had many times in design reviews where we're looking at, you know, two versions of a potential UI and then collectively in the room, it's like, these are okay, but I wish we wish we had more to look at. And then it's like, okay, design team, mm. go, go take, make two or three or four more. If we could just in that room, click a button and it like spit out three more be like, oh, interesting. That one's in. like, it helps us use our cognitive towers to put together the intangible pieces while looking at the tangible pieces. So that's fascinating. I would love to, I would not be surprised to see a tool like that pop out pretty soon. Yeah, and also I think we'll probably see more tools that move beyond heuristics. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about a heuristic eval, that's kind of helping us think about, does this design meet the criteria for like good user experience and accessibility and things like that? Yep. I mean, it doesn't seem that far-fetched to imagine just being able to like send your design into a thing yes. that says, hey, the button's too far away, bro. It, yeah, yeah, it's not legible with certain, you know, eye types, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, it's not legible. Um, or even like- Anyone over the age of 50 will not be able to read yes, this. Yes, or that the padding <laughs> you have in that UI will not work when you when you translate it to German. Like here it is in German and it can just show you, right? Like that. Yes, that's powerful, yes. right? That's super cool. And I wonder too, like even 
talking about the governance stuff, I could imagine situations where you could have governance tools that almost act as your arbiter yes. or help like facilitate some of that stuff. I've not yet seen any tools that that integrate governance rules. So you could determine as a team, like this, these are the steps something needs to go through, like a component needs to go through to get validated and be, be part of the system. All of that stuff is just done by humans right now. Like it's in a project document yeah. or something right now, right? So there's a huge advance. We're, we're sort of like 2009 when the iPhone, like I, 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 the App Store came out. Like we're real early tool days and there's gonna be a lot better stuff coming up, but you know, it's not gonna change. And to bring it back to facilitation and design thinking, kind of all this stuff, what's not going to change is, even with the best tools and the AI, is getting the right people in the room to agree on a direction and hearing them out, having them be part of the process. And that needs to happen continuously. It's not, you asked, how do we get started? Well, I said, get everyone together. That needs to be a, a cultural change, pattern change. It can't just be, we got everyone together and work for six months, right? You've got to build in these milestones where everyone's getting a chance to reflect and give feedback. And I think it's real easy to go heads down and disappear for six months and build a system. Just a big reminder for everyone out there, like bring your stakeholders in, even though it's scary because there's going to be those swooping poopers, you've got to hear them now because if you don't, they're still going to come and do that later and it'll be worse. But if you get them bought in from the beginning and keep them bought in, it makes everything go smoothly. And the storytelling, right? Like bring them in and then keep them looped in. Yeah. Like figure out ways to really ensure that the progress that's being made is amplified and told in a way that really resonates so that there's a narrative there that people can uh, can really, you know, understand and feel a part of. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of curious how often you run into design ops when you're thinking about design systems. Commonly, some companies have design ops teams, some, some don't. Uh, some put their design systems teams in the design ops. Ops or operations in general is a fascinating topic. Uh, I'm a big believer that design systems should not be part of uh, product teams, designers, and engineers. It's they have, they have mismatched KPIs and different goals. Design systems teams are much more about building that infrastructure and helping others move more quickly and be more efficient and make better stuff. So it's really an operations thing. And so it's fun to see design program management or program management team or design ops teams own the design system. It's not that common yet. And I think it's just a matter of time until more teams move that way. Yeah. When I first heard the term it immediately resonated with me and I could imagine so many ways to empower teams to work in that way, because, you know, whether it's tooling that just makes us go faster and especially if you combine it with design systems, mm -hmm. we've already decided how these components work. Well, I don't know, even I don't, let's say that we have a tool that can inject customer data into a, a, a widget. Yep. And so that way, when we bring our design up, we can then use that Figma plugin or whatever it is to then like switch in and out different like length names. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's like the, the, the classic, like, oh, this looked fine in the mock-up. <laughs> but then when we put like a 50 th character last name in there, it looks yeah, horrible. Totally broken. <laughs> yeah. All those exceptions. Yeah. It'd be yeah. great to test those exceptions for sure. I'm pretty sure in the next three years, we're going to, be weaning ourselves off using the term design systems. It is an inadequate name that captures too many things under it. And it has the word design in it. And it constantly causes friction because your engineers need to use it. Your product managers need to be involved with it. Your branding team needs to be involved with it. And so calling it a design system immediately makes it a difficult push through because people will go, it's not for me. That's what the designers use. Similar to design thinking. You know, like after using that term for a year at IBM, I just stopped using the word. 
and would just say, we're gathering people together for a reflection or a workshop or whatever. And so the naming of things is important. And I think we're, we're just using this as a placeholder. I think the term itself will evolve heavily over the next few years. That does happen. I've seen it happen many times, right? You'll go through evolutions and things will get rebranded, rebirthed. And, you know, it's like, oh, isn't this the same thing? Yeah. <laughs> and then it just emerges kind of with a different flavor and a new name. And mm-hmm. uh, it'll be, that's an interesting point that people are going to make associations just with the word design and the name. Yes. It, it happened with user experience UX, right? Like we, for a long time, were just broad spectrum UX designers and then realize, oh, there's content designers and there's there's visual designers and there's um, product, like more product-based or growth designers, right? There's all these nuances and they have totally different roles, even though we're all designers. So UX has kind of gone away a little bit. I think design systems will too, as a name. Yeah. That reminds me in the early days, uh, everyone was trying to hire a UX UI engineer. I know. They want you and to I was everything. like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So good. Well, we're kind of coming up on the end of our time together. So I would love to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. Yeah. Design systems are are the tool that enable us to step out of being individual makers, crafters on particular interfaces. And it, it elevates our craft to a point where we're able to spend more time focusing on our users, bringing in our stakeholders, collaborating more and less time just kind of grinding through production. That might be scary to some people, but I genuinely think it'll be a better job. And the teams that are already doing it, I'm seeing that as well. It helps us just be a more valuable set of contributors in any organization. I love that. It's an opportunity to elevate your skills and your perspective, your mindset. Definitely check out Nick at nickhan.com. And Nick, it's been a pleasure chatting today. We'll chat again soon, I'm sure. Yeah, hey man, this is so fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com.